Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Yes, we're into our third season now, and we really appreciate and want to thank all of you who sent in questions and corrections. We really enjoy this. Hope you're enjoying it, too. And we would request that if you have any great ideas for interviews for the next season, we're starting to get a lot of interest from folks for the interviews that we've done with folks like Hiccup 45 and my old friend Scott Grange trading hunting stories and such. So if you have ideas for people you would like to hear on Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast, let us know and we'll see if we can't wrangle up an interview. Now we're going to have our usual complaints and corrections and uh, some good questions today. And I want to start off with one here from uh, someone initialed RKBA and he's asking about a long range precision rifle option. He says, Ron, I can't decide between the 7mm 08 Remington or the 6.5 PRC? Well, that one, um, gosh, a couple of good options there. I think I'm going to come down recommending the 6.5 PRC for you if you're interested in the easiest way to get your shots on target at long range. And the reason I say that is because the 6.5 PRC shooting bullets that have pretty close to the same ballistics coefficient of the 7mm 08 bullets you could be shooting, the 6.5 will drive those about 200 feet per second faster. And that is going to give you an advantage in drop and deflections. So that is, I think, the easiest way to stay on target under varying conditions. But you also might want to consider longevity of your barrel because you've got a uh, narrower diameter barrel with that 0.264 inch diameter bullet you're shooting through the 6.5 versus the 0.28 inch diameter bullet on the 28 caliber, the 7 millimeter 08. You are going to be burning out your barrel a little sooner with the 6.5. And I think you're also having a little more powder in the back of that <laughs> 6.5 bullet. So that's kind of the way it comes down. Um, you're probably going to be looking at a 24 to 26 inch barrel, maybe even a 28 inch in either of those to really maximize your uh, muzzle velocity. And that will help a lot. So, hey, your choice at this stage of the game. All right. Now this one from Michael. Come on, Ron, you know better than that. Uh Oh, I think I'm getting chewed out again. <laughs> The 223 Remington is not, emphasis is not, the uh, same as the 5.56 NATO. It is a different cartridge, and you are dispensing false information by saying that it is. <laughs> All right, chastised. <laughs> Let's clear the air on this one a little bit because it, it just keeps popping up as a perennial question. The 223 Remington case cartridge is the whole business and the 5.56 NATO have the same dimensions, same rim diameter, same body, same head, same length, same shoulder. Everything is the same. But there is a significant difference that could get you into trouble if you intermix, especially if you try shooting the 5.56 in a 2.23. Here's the deal. The 2.23 was set up by Remington before the 5.56 was officially adopted by any militaries. So the 223 was the civilian version. And Remington figured, what do most civilians want a 22 caliber for? Well, they're going to be shooting rock chucks and long range varmints and such. So we're going to give them what was in that era, in the 60s, a popular bullet size 50 grain, 55 grain, 45 grain, maybe a 60 grain. But I don't remember any 60 grain bullets in the early 223s. 
Well, the military comes out and they're looking for whatever performance they need in warfare. And that calls for a heavier bullet, which has to be obviously a longer bullet. So when they chambered the AR style rifles, which of course weren't really the AR-15 rifle, this was the full military M-16 thing. And they had to chamber that a little bit longer for those longer bullets. So here's where you get into trouble. You take a 5.56 with a, say, a 70 grain bullet or some other long bullet, and you shove it into the chamber of a 223 Remington, which was probably throated for the shorter bullets, you could end up increasing pressures by either driving the neck and or the bullets into a tighter space in the chamber. Either the neck's going to maybe be intruding into the uh, a neck throat area a little bit, or more likely the bullet will simply be engaging the rifling back there. So that increases your pressures at launch. In addition, a lot of folks will say the military brass is a lot heavier or thicker, so it can withstand more pressures. I don't know if that's valid because every manufacturer changes his brass qualities a little bit differently from others. So some of them are a little bit more malleable. And also the internal dimensions change from brand to brand. That's why hand loaders are always taught to be consistent in what they are loading. If you're working with Remington Brass or Winchester or Lapua or Norma, stick with that brass for all of your loads. Don't go willy-nilly changing from one to the other because it could change your pressures based on the volume internally, even though the external dimensions are the same. The internals could change. So the safest way to, to look at this is to say, okay, yes, dimensionally, the 223 and the 556 are the same. Internally, they could be significantly different or at least a little bit different. But the big problem is those longer bullets and you don't want to be shooting the 556 in the 223 chambered rifles. You could easily get away with 223 in the 556. Might not be as accurate because the bullets are going to be shorter and jumping a lot farther. But most guys with 556 and fast twist barrels are successfully shooting the lighter, faster bullets through those from a 223. Um, it's not as much of a problem and certainly is not a pressure problem as it is the other way around. So let's uh, stick to that. 223 should not be fired with 556 five, ammunition. <laughs> Unless you're custom loading things, and we're not going to get into that because you've got to pay attention to all sorts of dimensions there. All right, justified there, Michael. You got me. Appreciate the correction. And I hope this uh, straightens things out for folks who are listening. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are 
$15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, now here's from one of my patrons, Super Oblivion Bread. What a name, huh? And he asked something about the 22 Winchester Magnum. We don't get a lot of questions on that one, but quite a few folks are interested in it and always wonder about it in the 22 Long Rifle. And uh, same here with Super. And he says, hey, what are your thoughts on the 22 Magnum? I have a very accurate rifle chamber 22 Win Mag, and I love it. But for a game like Squirrels, well, everything I've read and experienced seemingly indicates the 22 Mag is too hot for Squirrel. <laughs> A hunter is better served by the quieter and cheaper 22 long rifle or even a 20-gauge shotgun. So if I were hunting coyotes, I would certainly prefer my 223. Do you think there's a place for the old 22 Winchester Magnum rimfire, or is it doomed to obsolescence by today's better-performing rimfire options? He mentions the 17 HMR and easier access to higher-quality centerfire cartridges. This won't keep me from enjoying my 22 mag, but I remain hesitant to use it for hunting beyond simple pest control operations. Uh, I know it may, it sounds like I'm making a case against the 22 mag, but I really do enjoy shooting it. All right. So my answer to Super Oblivion here was, first of all, thanks for your support, Super. I really appreciate it. And secondly, I think you've answered your own questions. You figured it out. The 22 Win Mag is a fine, medium range, light recoiling, light reporting option for pest control. But uh, it's not the best for meat hunting small game like rabbits and squirrels. Even if you head shoot them, there's just so much explosive damage, you can lose a lot of meat. So I agree that the 22 long rifle, the 22 short, and even the, the CB cap are much better for taking your small game meat animals. Headshots it works just beautifully. You could take chest shots with them, but then you do risk hitting the shoulders and losing some meat there. Um, the 22 mag, yeah, it has a lot more reach, and I enjoy that uh, for pasture poodle shooting, shall we say. If I'm out in a infested alfalfa field, I like to have that magnum rim fire, and then I can reach out to 100, 125 yards, and that just gives me a lot more shooting opportunities on some of those spookier ground squirrels. And then you can use it for coyotes. It's not optimal, but there are a lot of jurisdictions where you cannot use a center fire during some seasons when coyote season is open. Um, so you might try the 22 Magnum there, and it's pretty effective if you put your shots properly, place it in the head or into the vital chest cavity. And out to 100 yards, 125 yards, it's got enough pop to do the job on coyotes. So continue enjoying that 22 Winchester Magnum of yours. Okay, this is from Rocky. Rocky is another patron, and he said, Hey, Ron, I'm thinking about getting a falling block rifle, but I can't decide between the Ruger number one and the Winchester 1885. I'd like to have your input on which you think would be the better option. I would mainly be using it for whitetails and groundhogs. Thanks and God bless. Well, thank you, Rocky, for that. Now, 
here's what I wrote back. I said, Rocky, you are fixing to have some fun. <laughs> I have loved shooting varmints like chucks with falling block rifles. There's just something about operating that lever and dropping in those rounds one by one. It's just the biggest consideration for you, I think, apart from the aesthetics, and that means the lines and the looks and the weight and the balance and everything, might be internal versus external hammer. I prefer a slight, by a slight margin, the look and the operation of that hammerless Ruger number one. But I also enjoy cocking and decocking the external hammer on the Winchester 85, except for the scope eyepiece getting in the way. Some scope eyepieces are going to protrude and get low enough to impede reaching in there with your thumb to pull the hammer back. I can usually make it work with the scopes that I've been using, but you want to consider that. Bit of a pain slipping the thumb in there sometimes. Now, another option, though a little pricier, is the Dakota Model 10, and that is now built and marketed by Park West Arms as the SD10. I find that to be a slimmer, more elegant option than the Ruger. Um, there's not a single pin or a screw head to mar the action block on that rifle. It's really quite amazing. So let me uh, know what you end up getting, Rocky. And uh, if you're considering cartridges, I have really settled on the 25-06 in my falling block single shot for what you're talking about. Great for pronghorn, whitetail, mule deer. I could use it for elk with a heavier bullet if I wanted to, but I have other rifles for that. But it's great for coyotes and it's not so powerful that you wouldn't want to use it for chucks and, and other um, pest animals. So you might want to consider that. One of my favorites. Okay. Now, those are things I copied from my work. Let us see what the team has pulled off. Questions that have been sent in by folks. And the first one is, can I do a video on the rise and fall of the 6.5 Creedmoor <laughs> rise and fall? <laughs> Actually, that's not a bad idea because there is a bit of a fall. The 6.5 Creedmoor, after its incredible rise in popularity, is really starting to fade a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's largely because there are other cartridges out now to compete against it. 6.5 PRC, 6.5 300 be the 26 nozzles, a lot of them in that 0.264 caliber um, venue, but also a lot more cartridges for shooting um, relatively inexpensively for the long range action stuff like the six millimeter Creedmoor, the 6.5 neck down. A lot of guys are finding it's a little less expensive to shoot that and less recoil and they're enjoying it. So there are just more options out there. Yeah, I might do that someday. This was from Caleb from Oklahoma. And Caleb, I think you can kind of stay tuned. We'll put that one on the agenda and we'll just take a look at where the where the Creedmoor started, what it did, and how it rose in popularity and why, and what's happening to it now. Kind of a slight downhill, I think, and that might continue. Be interesting to see. All right, here from San Antonio, Nick has a question. Hey, have you heard when a Remington 700 Alpha 1 rifle should be available? I've asked a lot of places in San Antonio near, near where I am, and nobody seems to know anything about when it will be available. And by golly, I'm one of them because I don't know either. It was about a year ago when I saw some prototypes and I talked with the president of the company and the head of the manufacturing plant, and they thought they were going to have them ready to go fairly quickly. And I have seen them advertised 
So I would imagine they would be coming online fairly quickly. Had I seen this question before, I could have done a little research for you and called around. I might do that after the show. And then the next time this pops up, I'll be better in the know. But I think it is, it's worth looking at and for because I was pretty impressed with what they were doing and saying about how they were going to improve that model 700. And as most people know, the Remington 700 during the 19, oh, the 70s and 80s, especially, and then pretty well into the 90s was the medium priced, accurate, dependable, a bold action rifle in the United States. They just, they seem to really control the market. But then they started having some quality issues. And then Remington went through all these different CEOs and managers and whatnot, and they kind of lost their way. And I think the manufacturing started to suffer and the quality and the tolerances and stuff. But now the under this new management, um, they're trying to really improve all that stuff. So what they did was a lot of surveys of folks found out what they didn't like about the recent Model 700s mostly a tolerances and a quality issue. And they ramped those up and, and uh, improved the tolerances and then made a few pretty significant improvements to the actual rifle's construction and the metallurgy of it, increased the twist rates of the barrels and a lot more consistency there and some pretty, pretty exciting stuff. And they called it the Alpha One. They figured it was enough of an improvement and a difference in that Model 700. But it's basically the 700 action with better trigger, better barrel, and better metals and all sorts of great stuff. So I think it's worth looking for. So hang in there. Um, wouldn't hurt to just try to give Remington itself a call or an email and just see what they can tell you. It'd be fun to see how they'll shoot. The, the prototypes that I was shooting were just fine. I mean, they worked great. They were extremely accurate, easy to shoot. I think it's uh, got a lot of potential. All right, this is John from Michigan. What is going on with the supply of hunting rifles? I've been waiting for a Tika rifle for months. Not one dealer has an answer. The stores are loaded with 6.5 Creedmoors. The caliber is a fad. <laughs> well, there you go, Caleb. <laughs> there, this guy doesn't seem to think the 6.5 Creedmoor is falling anywhere. Uh, I tell you what, John, you know, the, the supply of hunting rifles issue, I think it's just tied up with all the rest of our problems we're having with supply and demand these days. You know, you go back to about six months ago with all the ships tied up in the ports and they couldn't get in and, uh, and manufacturing is down. People were sick with COVID and government shut stuff down. And I mean, it just made a mess. And I think manufacturers are still trying to recover from that. And then there's the loss of workers, you know, a lot of Manufacturers are having trouble getting people um, to work for them. It's it's crazy, but boy, that's all I can think. I don't have any inside information other than I think what everybody else knows about our current economy. It's kind of got to be it's a problem, you know, from computers and phones to automobiles to you name it. But I heard from someone else last week who said that he saw a lot of Tika rifles in his retail stores so it might be a local issue for you too but it sounds like you're doing your research here you're talking all your dealers can't seem to find them i don't know what to say um, i think it's definitely increasing the market on used rifles so hey good luck finding something and that goes for everyone out there it sounds like if you you find something that's what you like or close to it you better pick it up i mean things might improve quickly here in the, in the near future i don't know but getting to be quite an issue. 
All right, here from Arizona is Carl asking about what? I see 6.8 Western here. Ron, I was looking at uh, Barnes load data for the 6.8 Western, and I noticed that they have data for 155 grain LRX bullet in .277 caliber, the right one. But that bullet is not listed on their website. Do you think it's something that's coming out in the future? I think it would be excellent for the 6.8 Westerner. Thanks. Yeah, that does seem like it would be something new they would be designing for both the 6.8, well, more than just both, but the 6.8 Western as well as the 26 Nosler or the 27 Nosler. And what is another, two, oh, potentially the 277 Fury from Sig Sauer. I think those all have fast twist barrels that would probably handle that bullet. In lead core bullets right now, the heaviest I know of is the 175 grain Sierra Match King or Game King Match King style bullet with a polymer tip. And I think Berger has one that's getting up toward 180 perhaps. Um, boy, they're getting to be some pretty long, heavy bullets in 270. So your comparable in comb in uh in all copper, of course, are going to be a lot lighter in weight to be that long. You, you'll have that same maximum length, so they fit the throats of the rifles, but they're going to be lighter. And I would guess 155 grain would be about as heavy as they could go. So that is probably what's happening, just what you guessed. LRX is on the drawing boards, or they're beginning to manufacture it, not ready quite to start sending it out to the market. So maybe that's why it's not in their catalog or on their website. So I would keep uh, keep a watch for that one. You're going to see a lot more developments in the longer bullets in both the lead core styles and the coppers in 277 this year. All right, um, from Texas, Rob. Ron, some years ago, I was regularly hunting South Texas White Hills using a Saco Forester in Winchester's 243 using 90 grain Remington Corlock ammunition. Boy, this guy is an you know, equal opportunity user here. Winchester, Remington, and Saco all together. <laughs> Uh, let's see if it worked out for him. After losing several deer, uh-oh, something's going wrong. Losing several deer and hogs due to no knockdown and poor blood trail, a friend suggested that I use a lighter bullet, 55 grains, and a ballistic tip to boot. Okay, I know that bullet, 55 grain ballistic tip from Nosler. And I've seen it work pretty effectively in the very 243 Winchester you're talking about. Now, since uh, switching to that bullet, I have never lost an animal. Uh-oh, this is going to start some commentary. I've had 100% knockdown and stay down. Currently, I am using a round with a Nostra 55 grain ballistic tip spitzer bullet loaded to 3,800 feet per second. With this round, I have never lost a deer hog, javelina, or an odd My range is typically 75 to 200 yards. I wonder if you could explain why the light, fast ballistic tip ground performs so well. Thank you. I learned a lot from your videos, and I really like your style. Well, thank you so much for that, Rob. Let's see if I can come up with a suitable answer for you. I think I can because I have satisfied myself as to what's going on here. Having done the same thing, I've shot a lot of game with the 243 and the 6mm Remington using 100 grain, 105 grain, and 90 grain, 80 grain bullets, 75 grain Barnes bullets, and just all kinds of them over the years. But when I, a couple times, used a varmint-style bullet on deer, which was legal where I was hunting, I found dramatic results, the same that you're reporting. And what made sense to me is if you know anything about explosive, as we call them, varmint bullets, they break up rather quickly after entering uh, a target animal. 
and they make sort of a softball sized wound. Everything happens very short distance, say three inches into the target. Things just go, all that energy is dispersed that the bullet breaks up into a lot of pieces. And if you put that bullet into the heart lungs of a deer, I mean, that is a significant percentage of its pulmonary system. The cardiopulmonary system is radically destroyed with that bullet. Whereas with a more controlled expansion bullet and deep penetration, yes, you have a long wound channel and you reach more tissue that way, but you don't have that larger wound pocket that you get with the more explosive bullet. And to me, that pretty much explains what's happening. And I've seen it several times with deer targeted just behind the shoulder, right over the heart. And it has such impressive hemorrhaging that those animals are pretty much done instantly. Um, I don't know that I would attribute it to hydrostatic shock that I think a lot of folks would. I think it's more the fact that you've just completely let the air out of them, as some of my friends would say. That is a radical decrease in their blood pressure. And as anyone who's ever fainted or come close to it knows, if you don't have adequate blood pressure, you faint. And the animal faints. And then within several minutes, the brain cells die. This is what the clinicians tell me, the doctors. 10 minutes and all your brain cells are died if they don't have fresh oxygen. And that's what the heart and lungs do. They put oxygenated blood, pump it up to the brain, it recycles to your system. So that's what's going on. And I think that's what you found out. Now, why do so many people say never use these frangible bullets on deer or any big game? And some states even disallow them. Well, it's because those bullets do have the potential to come apart before they reach the vital area. So if you put your shot right on the shoulder, hit that major bone or muscle group, there's some potential that you'll tear up the meat and not reach the vitals. So you do have to be extremely careful and precise with your shot placement if you use those more frangible bullets. And of course, your velocity, 3,800 feet per second, increase the potential for what <laughs> you've seen has been happening. That bullet just goes apart. There's so much energy in it that it has to go someplace and the bullet cannot hold it together. So that's what's happening. That was a good one, Rob. Appreciate the opportunity to expound a little bit on what I've discovered about those frangible bullets on deer. Now, down in the Kentucky, Daniel Boone's old state, Mr. Spencer says, hey, Ron, imagine that you are going to take, oh, you're going to be taken on a mystery hunt. Well, I like that. Somewhere in North America, but you don't know where you will be going or even what you'll be shooting. But you know it will be a medium to large-sized game. So what rifle, what cartridge, and what bullet are you taking to be prepared for anything? Oh, this is kind of a fun one. All right, Spencer, let's see. I could be hunting anywhere from a whitetail mule deer up to uh, a moose or uh, maybe even a big grizzly bear up in Alaska or something, huh? Oh, boy. You know, there are a lot of great options out there, but I am going to start with a bullet because that is what's doing all the work. That is the most vital piece of this whole puzzle. Everything else is a launch pad for the bullet. So I'm going to make sure I have a controlled expansion bullet, something that's going to have deep penetration, not going to be stopped by major muscle group or large bones. And that to me suggests 
either a bonded bullet with some pretty hard lead, which you really can't get because to get a good bonded bullet, I think they have to go with pure lead. That keeps it pretty soft. So even though the jacket material and the lead are sticking together, the lead is pretty soft and malleable. So you got the potential to get pretty mangled up and maybe lose something. Now, if you go with the partition style bullets with the thicker jackets and all, like the A-frame Swift bullet, boy, you've got deep, deep penetration on that retains 80% or more of its weight and really penetrates deeply. And then there are several more along those lines and a good mix of thick jackets and hard lead cores. Um, so something along those lines, maybe an Acubond. Um, but I think I'm going to stick with the copper bullets. I have just had so much luck with Barnes bullets over the years. And I've been shooting those since the early 1990s. And uh, recently, I've been shooting the Hammer Hunter bullets, which are quite similar, but there's a little bit difference in the um, the radial grooves on it. And it reduces the pressures and you get a little bit less fouling from them and stuff because there's less surface area touching the bore. And I find that they're a little bit faster than all the other bullets. Same weight, same powders, and I can drive them about 100 feet per second faster without any apparent increase in the pressures. So I really like those hammer hunters. But I would also look at um, cutting edge bullets, Badlands Precisions. There's just so many good copper bullets out there now. So I'm going to go with a copper bullet, hollow nose, pedals expanding, twirling, all that good stuff. Now I got to stick it on top of a cartridge full of powder, don't I? <laughs> so with the potential for running into a big brown bear that could weigh a thousand pounds or more, oh my goodness, I would be foolish to take something too light. Now I know a 30X6 can do the job um, because my friend Phil Shoemaker up in Alaska, master guide, guides big bear hunters. He says the bears he's observed hit with a good bullet in the right place with 30 out six die just as fast as the ones hit with the 338 magnums in the right bullet in the right place. So, but hmm, since this is a kind of a crapshoot here, why not err on the side of too much than too little? I might have to go with a 338 win mag, I'm afraid. <laughs> I just know I'm covered, even though I'm always harping on how effective a good bullet in a seven rim mag can be and all the rest. And, and I'm not real crazy about going mule deer hunting with a 338 wind mag, but come on, it'll certainly do the job. I can handle the recoil. I've used a 338 wind mag enough that I know I can do the job with it. And with the right bullets, you can shoot just about as flat as most of the 300s and uh, and the sevens. So yeah, I think I'm going to come down on that 338. Now I might might take a look at something like a 338 compact magnum ruger uh not very popular around i don't know if i can even find a rifle chambered for it but i like the idea of that shorter cartridge although i think yeah i think that one also fits in the standard length action same as a 338 wind mag and i'll find an ammunition three yeah i'm gonna have to stick with that 338 wind mag I would entertain something else, but eh, that's how I'm coming down on this one, partner. Now, if you threw the big bears out of it, I might have to go with some kind of a seven mag. I just do, just always love that seven rem mag, and but I might be willing to try the seven PRC. Boy, you can tell I really have my mind made up, don't I, guys? <laughs> juggling, juggling, juggling. But we all go through that, don't we? Everybody has to decide, and it takes just a lot of study. And, you know, that's a big part of the fun. Studying the ballistic tables and considering different options and what might happen and what if a bear attacks and what kind of a bullet you need for that. And, man, it, it just all ties together to have keep you busy until the next hunting season rolls around.
All right. Now we're hearing from Illinois on this one. Dave in Illinois says, I have a P.O. Ackley 17223 Ackley Improved. Well, there's one you don't see every day. It has a Saco L461 action. I cannot find any information on the website. I'm not sure which website you're talking about here, Dave. Um, I was told by someone that I used who used to work for P.O. Ackley that he hasn't made a set of dies for that gun since 1955. Well, he's been dead for many, many years. And that it is one of five made. Wow. I'm not sure about that, but can you provide a picture and serial number? No, I can provide a picture and serial number. Any feedback would be great. Boy, you know, Dave, I don't know about who made your rifle. Um, if it was P.O. Ackley, um, he certainly made a few, but that would be kind of cool to know you've got an original one of only five 17223 Ackleys um, and then Ackley improved to boot. But I just don't know that much about what he produced. You know, I'm pretty much up on his whole ideas behind his Ackley Magnum cartridges and such, but I just didn't follow what he built as a gunsmith. So uh, I really can't help you out there. Perhaps someone in the audience can't. Anyone out there familiar with the 17223 Ackley Improved? It, obviously, it's a Wildcat. Took the 223 Remington, neck it down to 17, sharpened the shoulder, I'm sure is what he usually did. Went with the 40-degree shoulder on all of his improved cartridges. And there you go. So uh, you could easily replicate that. And you can get um, dies for those from most of the die manufacturers will have them. Redding and RCBS and Hornady. And you just go to their custom die if they don't have it in stock and they'll build one for you. You might, if you cannot find the exact dimensions of that 17223 Ackley improved, you might have to make a chamber cast and send that to them. Um, and then they'll be able to make one for you. But it's it's all possible. There's plenty of companies out there who can make all these things for you. That would be a hot little round. Um, I haven't worked with too many Centerfire 17s. You know, of course, you got the Fireball now, uh, factory cartridge. The 17 Remington has been out for a long time, that way back into the 70, 70s on that. And what's another 17 Centerfire? 17 Fireball, 17 um, Hornet is out in a factory cartridge too. So there's a simpler way to get your 17. <laughs> but if you've got this original, that would be a fun one to work with. So yeah, I hope you find your dies. And if anyone wants to chamber that, they can also build reamers, chamber it up for you. Be a fun little inexpensive rifle to shoot if you're a hand loader. You're not going to find any factory loads for it. And that looks like, unless this computer is hiding something, the end of our questions for today. I don't think there are any more here on my notes. That's it. Hey, I want to thank all of you guys. And once again, welcome to our third season here. Keep those questions coming and especially the corrections. Always appreciate that because we hate to steer you wrong. Until next time, this is Ron Spomer. Thanks for listening. Hunt honest and shoot straight.